Hello and welcome to CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to talk about mobile application security. Before we get going, of course, let me remind you to please subscribe to us if you're not already. If you are, thank you very much. And if not, share us with somebody else so you can go ahead and help spread the word about CISO Tradecraft. If we're helping your career, let us know and hopefully give us a five-star whenever you're going ahead and giving feedback to your favorite podcast platform. So mobile application security, it's a whole lot more than just whatever you click and download in the app store. It turns out that I've learned an awful lot doing this episode that there's an entire ecosystem out there and a lot of moving parts, particularly if you're in an organization that does mobile app development. Now, even if you're not, don't say, hey, this doesn't pertain. Go ahead and keep listening. Why? Because someday you may be there and this is going to be a great reference episode. So I've got a wonderful guest for you today. I think you'll really enjoy the show. And now it's my privilege to have Brian Reed, the Chief Mobility Officer from Now Secure. He's going to discuss a little bit more in terms of, well, really, what can you do with mobile security and, and how can you make it a reality? Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, you, Mark. Thanks for having me. I've been a faithful listener for over a year, and I'm excited to be part of the conversation today. Well, that's awesome. I understand you've been doing mobility for or mobile for a lot longer than a year. Tell me a little bit about your background, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. So today I serve as the Chief Mobility Officer at Now Secure. We're a mobile application security company. My mobile history dates back to BlackBerry. So I got involved with BlackBerry earlier in the aughts. And that was back when BlackBerry was a pager, and then it became a phone, and then it became a phone with some apps, and you know, so on and so forth. So it's, it's been a wild ride through that journey. Was involved a lot in the early days of iPhone and Android when they were birthed, and basically replaced the, uh, the BlackBerry in the marketplace, which is a story for a whole nother conversation. And work with a company called Good Technology, you might know they were locking down and securing, providing secure messaging and application services on iPhone and Android devices to make them look like Blackberries to a security professional and a couple of other things along the way. So I've been doing uh, application development and security for most of my career. Wow. And you probably miss the little trackball on the Blackberry for those of us who live with them. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely miss the chiclet keyboard. That was one of the most mm -hmm. genius inventions, right? I was one of the last people to turn in my BlackBerry when the world moved to iPhone and Android devices. And now I'm very much used to the touchscreen, but the sensory nature of being able to type without even looking at the device was amazing. Yeah, I had a, uh, a phone after my BlackBerry. I try to remember what it was, but it was it expanded out a little bit and it had a keyboard. You ran Windows CE. And I remember one time I was teaching a security class in Vegas and you know, the student was you know, looking at it, talking about hacking. And I said, well, here, you want to go ahead and hack this. I'll give you my permission. She gave it back a half hour later. She says, couldn't get in. I said, everybody threw their tools out. Nobody has anything left for it. But today we can't just define our security as being dependent upon obsolescence because apps are changing all the time and mobile's evolving all the time. And it's really uh, both a moving target for attackers as well as defenders. So what does CISO need to understand? What should somebody in our role be thinking about when it comes to mobile security? I think it's a, it's a really good question. And, and I have conversations a lot with leaders and, and try to encourage them to think about you know, a couple of things here. First one is mobile is part of your attack surface. Do not ignore it. There's a lot of obsession around device management and not enough recognition that mobile applications are part of your attack surface. 
both the applications that you're building for your customers and your partners and your employees, but also the commercial applications that run in the app store, right? That can often be an avenue into your organization. And I'm not talking about malware. I'm talking about commercial applications that are exploitable to capture your credentials, to capture uh, PII or PHI or other private sensitive data that you're, that you're worried about. So the you know, first thing is make sure that mobile is part of your enterprise risk program, make sure it's part of uh, your threat model. The second thing then is how do you make sure you actually secure it and, and deal with privacy? And you need to do that within the realms of what Apple and Google provide, right, within their environment. And so we have the existing app stores. And one of the issues that a lot of times we face in terms of security is the responsibility and accountability for enforcing it. Now, sometimes when we outsource something, we say, well, hey, it's our third-party vendor. Or some people are of the mistaken belief, oh, well, we outsource to the cloud, and so they'll handle all my disaster, they'll handle all my backup, all my security. But of course, you still have the reputational risk if you go down and try and explain to your customers. But here, can we actually delegate out that risk in terms of our attack surface management to the primary vendors in their app stores with Google and Apple? Or is there something that we might be thinking of more than just simply, oh, it was in the store, it must be good? Yeah, you, you can't delegate your risk to them, right? The, the reality is that Apple and Google are in the business of providing a vehicle for application developers to produce products and deliver them to their customers. They are not inherently security companies and they're not gonna take on your risk. Now, Apple and Google both work to curate their stores. They try to prevent malware from going in there. Google has the App Defense Alliance that's a group of a bunch of security vendors all working together to help protect and defend the environment. But the reality is that the responsibility is up to the application developer and the application user or the company that the user works for to ensure and enable that it's a, it's a secure experience. It all boils down to, did you write secure code in the first place? Did you test it properly, right? Did you release it? Are you monitoring and managing it? Like every other system, that we in our organizations are building and deploying. So what we find then is organizations that are developing their own mobile apps are of course in particular concern, but even CISOs for organizations that simply have their users download things also have to be worried as well because they don't have any input. They don't get an opportunity to review the source code and make a determination. They can't run their testing tools against it. So I wanna spend a little bit more time on those organizations that do app development and issues there, but kind of for those who don't have that, and I don't want you tuning out either, by the way, if you don't have mobile app development or enterprise, keep listening because you don't know where your next job is going to be. You don't know what your next assignment next week. They said, oh, by the way, we're adding this. But anything else that you can think of that before we talk about issues and challenges and things in, in this particular area? Yeah, so there's the apps you build and there's the apps you download and use, right? Whether you buy them or they're a free app or what have you, right? Your employees are probably taking notes in some free app that they downloaded from the app store. They're using it for travel. They're using it for other things. And corporate data can wind up in those, right? So you really need to think about responsibility. Even in a BYOD scenario, you should be thinking about how are you protecting your data. This is all about protecting sensitive data that might be living in commercial applications, whether or not they're purchased or approved by your organization. So when, when we think about that, you know, we take a, a step back, right? When we look at what's going on in the world in terms of internet business and traffic, the internet sensors from Comscore show that like 70% of all digital time spent is now in mobile apps. So even if you're providing a PC and even if you're locking it down and even if you're throwing web controls on it and everything else, the odds are great that your employees are using commercial apps. And of course, your customers are using commercial apps. So we have to recognize that it's part of the attack surface and we have to recognize that we need to pay attention to it. 
I was on a CISO call last week where they're all talking about how they're buying five, 10 or 15 different threat modeling tools and threat modeling data services and all these different you know, kinds of data feeds because they want to know what's living on 4chan and the dark web attacking them. And very few of them were doing anything for mobile risk management. Very few of them were paying attention to the fundamental supply chain that your business is running on commercial applications that come out of commercial app stores. So as you think about supply chain risk management, and we're going to talk about developments, we're going to talk about third-party code, think about the apps themselves, the mobile apps themselves that are coming out of commercial app stores. Those are also part of your supply chain. And you really should have mobile as a component of supply chain risk management. Now, the good news is there's some commercial tools that you can use that do app vetting, large-scale commercial app vetting. It's basically reputation analysis of those apps coming out of the store. And whether you work with Now Secure or one of the other companies that does that, you want to be monitoring that those applications are safe for use, that they don't transmit data unencrypted, that they don't transmit the data to China, that they don't uh, store data in unencrypted fashion, that they don't allow all Android permissions so every other app on your device can scrape data out of your Android apps, right? It's just good straight up hygiene that like you're going to monitor and, and really vet and monitor the other infrastructure apps and tools you're bringing into your business. You should do that for the commercial apps from the app stores. Excellent insight because I think for a certain extent, when you install an app, most of them says they want all these permissions. The average user doesn't even look at that. They just like, okay. And we used to joke that a way you can tell malware is they're only going to ask for very limited permissions to do their evil thing because the regular commercial developers are lazy. They just ask for everything. So if it's a really narrow set, maybe they're up to something, which is kind of reverse of what you'd expect. There's some re reverse psychology in that. You know, we did, a, did an internal risk uh, assessment benchmark for a federal agency. They have uh, 12,000 employees. We found 1,750 distinct commercial applications on their network. 10% of them would scare the bejesus out of you. So 10% of them had vulnerabilities in them that were CVSS score seven or higher, if you know your way down that path. We had remote code execution. We had account takeover. We had unencrypted credentials, user ID and password. We had unencrypted storage on the devices. So no matter how big or small your population, with 70 or 80 applications on the average device, the odds pretty decent that someone's using something they probably shouldn't. And that's excellent insight. Now, is that just apps that have vulnerabilities that just weren't patched and they're waiting for the user to patch them? Or are they just apps that there isn't a patch and they're just plain vulnerable? And when the CVSS is published, uh, the clock is ticking as sort of a race condition between do you make a business decision to get rid of this thing or lock it out before the bad guys exploit it? Because the vendor may not be updating. Yeah, I mean, the reality is these are things we found in our vulnerability. We do large-scale vulnerability analysis. So these are active, active, vulnerable situations. They may or may not have been exploited yet, right? When they're exploited, then we discover them in the news and you find a CVE, right, showing up in the, in the, in the NIST listings. But the, the reality is that we don't know whose data is being breached because these commercial apps have exploits and no one's monitoring for it. And that's, that's kind of spooky. Now, it's not really MITRE or National Vulnerability Database or any of the other places that are tracking these things to go ahead and maintain hygiene for these companies. Pretty much anybody can write an app. And in fact, for some people these days, it might be one of your first programming assignments is to say, write a simple app and go from there. Unfortunately, it's like building your, you know, go build an airplane. Oh, we forgot to go ahead and put some safety features. Yeah, there's no rudder on it, so you can't steer it once you get in the air. 
Do we find that the general hygiene out there for organizations are great, for fair, poor, or a whole mix of things? And where have the biggest exploits been? I mean, we've seen lots of things recently, but any particular cases, not to pick on anybody, but to help our listeners understand the magnitude of what the issue might actually be out there in terms of the implication of an unsecure mobile app in your enterprise and staying there. So I'll give you kind of a, I'm going to give you some data and then I'm going to give you some how to solve the problem, right? So if we do some wide scale data, so in our analysis of the millions of apps in the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store, 85% of them, that was 85% of them fail one or more of the OWASP Mobile Top 10 or one or more of the categories of OWASP MASVS, which is the replacement for the OWASP Top 10. That was 85%, right? 60% of them fail two or more. So it's not just like one problem, it's many. Now, if you slice across them and say, well, let's go take a look at privacy and and PHI, PII, and data leakage, well, you discover about 70% of them leak data in a way that would violate CCPA or GDPR. So now I've got security and privacy are, are major concerns. And this is literally millions of applications. So if you were to ask me the quality or the state of the world, It's sort of like web-based cross-site scripting. That thing has been around for 20 years and just won't go away. And the reality here is that the majority of mobile apps are insecure in some way, shape, or form. Now, that doesn't mean all developers are bad, right? That doesn't mean all apps are bad either. It's just very wide-scale weaknesses in security. And there's really three reasons. The first one is we all know that developers generally aren't taught security in the first place. So... With mobile, just like anything else, you need to teach developers about security. The second thing actually has to do with the difference between the architecture of web and mobile. When I write a web application, 90% of the business logic, code, and storage is behind a firewall. And a small amount of the application comes down into a browser, and that browser itself is a protected environment. Some browsers are more secure than others, but it's basically protected. That has controls like, are you allowed to persist a disk? And it handles SSL, you know, two-way SSL communication. All I have to do as developer is write HTTPS, and I've got an encrypted connection. When you build a mobile application, you got to do all that yourself. So now 90% of the app lives on the device, and it connects to remote logic. But there's a lot of intelligence and data on the device. That device, they have to figure out how to do storage. That device, they have to figure out how to set up and tear down a network connection and do it the right way. It's not a simple one-line HTTPS and you make a remote call. As a result of that, there is a large, wide-scale variation of the ability of developers to write code the right way and do those things as the right and the right mechanism. Now, Apple and Google over the years have been doing a good job of making things stronger and stronger and simpler and simpler. Apple came out with something a few years ago called ATS. ATS, App Transport Security, is the default way to do encrypted network communications. 65% of the apps in the Apple App Store disable ATS and roll their own for network communication. All right. On Android, Android created something called SafetyNet. And the idea basically is it can detect whether a device has been tampered with, rooted, or something else. Only about 30% of the applications on Android use that API call to discover whether that Android device has been tampered with or not and unload themselves on a tampered device. So there's a lot of APIs that developers could be using that they're not, which sort of points back to my first point on the education side. So those are like the, the sort of the three dark horsemen of the apocalypse are lack of training, right? Very hard architecture to write securely and lack of use of the standard APIs in the right way in order to help lock down those applications. 
Well, it seems that the lack of training can often be solved with, well, getting your developers some, some training programs, and there's many uh, sources out there, but they take time and money, and usually there's an imperative to get something out the door. And now as we're looking at the economy going the way they are, maybe we're going to see training budgets get a little bit crimped. And so I don't see that getting better overnight. And having some sort of a, a secure development area or that mindset, it's just not there. But the last one to me was sort of fascinating, what I would call the API disuse. It's not misuse. It's just disuse. If it's there, if it's already written, why would a developer not just plug in and go with it? Is it that tough to figure out? Well, I think it goes, it does go back to the training. It It is complicated because again, if I, like I said before, it's not writing a little JavaScript that runs in a browser. You have to understand how to write code in a standalone application that can launch itself and run on a device because now most of the logic, the setup, the logic, the GUI and everything is living on that device. So the amount of code a developer has to write is fundamentally more in a mobile app than a web app. Now, the good news is training's free. So Now Secure, for example, has something called Now Secure Academy. We freewared it. So it's got 60 hours of training for developers and security people to learn everything they need to know about mobile. Some of the most popular courses are, what are the five APIs I should be using? What are the five most common vulnerabilities, right? Go have your developer watch that 30 minutes later when he's done, he's like, oh, I should use these five APIs, right? And so what we're actually trying to do is, is open source that training in a way to raise the bar. And there's thousands and thousands of people that you know have, have taken that training. So Apple and Google are also getting better in their documentation. They're, the documentation and evolution, they now have videos, they now have developer guides and so on and so forth. And that's why I think for the people who are serious about it, the quality is getting better. The challenge is in the breadth of the world, there's such a variability of developer types that it's different. In the highly regulated industries, we are seeing better performance, right? So finance and, and fintech and health tech and those guys, they're more serious about it because of the obvious reasons in their business with regulations. So they're more likely to be successful there. So if a CISO finds themselves in an environment where we don't have the benefit of, if you will, that mature environment where there isn't a lot of regulation and therefore the dev shop probably isn't taking advantage of things like the free now secure training and having the standards and knowing what the APIs are, how would that security professional effectively influence that dev team without either creating a lot of hate and discontent or, or why? I mean, that, that, that to me, because the diff biggest difficulty has always been for a lot of times it comes to developers and the head of security is there's not a direct reporting relationship. It's sort of a sideways and you have to influence rather than direct. But what makes that work? I think when we when we look at that, it's this is one of those art and science and everything on the truck, right? So you've ideally the, the organizations that we see they're most successful, first is they have something like a security champions program in some way, shape, or form. And that's really where, you know, smart security people try to find some smart developers and kind of get them to come down their path. Oftentimes that could be developers that already are writing high quality code. And oftentimes that's actually switching the security story to a quality story. Hey, we're on this together. We're trying to create quality apps that everybody wants to use. Let's make sure we understand how to take advantage of quality. And you treat security as just another kind of quality bug. That can be part of the path. I think the second thing is really around the enablement to help bring the developers along the path. Our, our most popular product is the one no developer uses because the system does the work for them in the background. So we're finding a lot of organizations are deploying security into the tool chain itself. 
right? So how can security scan code repos in the background and the developer never has to do anything, they just get security bugs as regular issue tickets. How do you automatically test a build and automatically feed those tickets into the developer makes it easier because no human labor is in there and that's a lower cost. And then when you do that, make sure the tickets you feed to developers, we all know this, traditional SaaS tools are high noise, high annoying, high false positives. Make sure you give high fidelity issues and issues only to the developer. But to go with that, make sure you have embedded remediation. The most popular thing we added in our, our suite last year was the ability to uh, include automated embedded remediation in the ticket. So the ticket actually has the code examples, the developer instructions, links back to Apple and Google documentation about the APIs, mini training videos and everything else. So now you have a mean time to repair that can be measured in minutes or hours, not days or weeks. And when it's easy to do like cut and paste and change a variable, developer's gonna do it, right? It's just easier to help them actually get the work done. So that's, that's why I often talk about CISOs don't, they need to train their team not to be the department of no. They need to train their team to be the department. I'm here to help and I'm gonna give you tools to enable you to do what you need to do. When you make it kind of transparent in that work environment for those developers and you give them highly accurate results and you give them embedded remediation instructions and sample code, it goes a lot faster. And that to me, when you were saying that, I was just kind of stunned. It's like, wow, I didn't even know such a thing existed. That sounds absolutely like the, like the best of all worlds, like someone's done a ton of homework and then you can... A, you know, drop the noise. You want the signal noise ratio to be high. That's obvious. I think we know that. But the hard part is, is that what to put in that signal other than, okay, well, you're out of bounds here, or that's a an incorrect call or something like that. But what you're saying is the tool sets actually have enough smarts in them, if you will, to give you contextually aware feedback for the developers that they can go at it right away. And, and that to me is you know, nothing short of amazing, in my opinion. It, it is pre it is pretty amazing. You know, for, for those who, who are development oriented, you probably saw that GitHub bought some security companies and GitHub's embedded security in the repo environment. And we work with that. We probably buy the mobile solution in that world. But what we did is we actually did time motion studies. We've been doing this for 12 years, right? We're not like somebody's new company yesterday. Time motion studies. You can compress the pipeline and speed the performance and get everybody on board if you do a couple things. Establish a mutual policy in the front end. Let's all agree that we're going to use OWASP and here's the coding practices we're going to use. And here's the testing practices we're going to use. Deploy a little bit of training, like 30 minutes of, you know, an online training course on what five security APIs to use. PM team, pre-written for PM. Coding requirements, right? Tickets, ticket requests for the PM to go into issue tickets, right? That are requirements for how to build something on a secure way. People often call them non-functional or functional, depending on what they are. Like, do you want to have multi-factor auth or how do you want to do storage or what PII should be kept and thrown and things like that. Automate the test continuously in the pipeline, feed remediation tickets with that embedded knowledge, right? Contextually aware embedded knowledge back to them. Do a pen test once in a while, but make sure security is mostly running autonomously. Suddenly you've compressed the speed. You've got everybody aligned and on board, and now you get the throughput so they can focus on the invasion parts and not stumble with the security parts. And so what you're really doing then is you're taking away security as a potential obstacle and you're making it a form of enablement. We've reclassified security as a form of quality. I think everybody wants to put out quality apps, quality code. And framing it that way sounds like a much better way than beating somebody up with a CVSS score or say your punishment is go reread the OWASP mobile top 10 tonight 
and we'll have a quiz tomorrow and like what's number five and things such as that. You can gamify it. You can celebrate it. You know, between security champions and security accomplishments, right? You can celebrate it in your organization. We've got some customers doing some really amazing things where, where dev and sec are really together. And it's because they've got a positive view of they're solving quality problems. It's not so much a security and privacy issue. It's a quality problem, right? That they're going to go down the path on. Bringing them together with a mutual agreement of going down that path has a lot to do. Now, the challenge is you're going to need leadership to do that as well. So as a CISO, you or your head of AppSec has got to go find a way to partner with a CTO or the head of engineering. And if you can't do it enterprise-wide, find a great progressive team and start with a progressive team who has that quality in their backbone. And then you can build off of that to do your iterations. And that sounds almost like the same advice as getting a DevSecOps program going. That is the same thing, just it with really a different It really is, just for mobile. Yeah. And for, it's with, with a slightly different name, right? And I talked about the architectural differences, you know, between web and mobile, but almost everything else you're doing for DevSecOps, you can do in mobile. The tooling is there. The automation is there. The enablement is there. The training is there. Policy-driven testing is there. And it's interesting, too. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I'll just toss this in. OWASP started with web. And they recognized mobile was different enough that we now have the MASVS and the mobile program and the mobile top 10 that's different than the web top 10. MITRE did the same thing from a threat perspective. There's the MITRE attack and there's a separate MITRE mobile attack. And by the way, if you haven't seen the MITRE mobile attack, your team ought to be looking at it. But from a DevSecOps perspective, other than the tooling under the hood and the APIs, all of the other constructs of how a good DevSecOps pipeline run are the same. So you can get leverage across your web and mobile teams. Yeah, and you mentioned the... Uh... MASVS, which pretty much has four achievements. And we'll throw a little bit of education in here to provide requirements for software architects and developers seeking to develop secure mobile apps, exactly what we're talking about, offering an industry standard that could be tested against mobile app security reviews, clarifying the role of software protection mechanisms in mobile security, provide requirements, verify the effectiveness, and provide specific recommendations as to what level of security is recommended for different use cases. And again, it sounds like you've almost automated a lot of that. It's really cool. So MASVS, so the OWASP mobile project has two documents, MASVS and MSTG. MASVS is the cookbook. MAS, MSTG is the testing checklist that goes with the cookbook, right? And we have some equivalents in, in the web world. What's really awesome about what's going on is the OWASP MASVS is going through a refactoring right now. And at the end of this year, we're going to be able to do compliance as code. That means that the industry will be able to take the MASVS spec and automate it in a pipeline for DevSecOps. So imagine a world where 80 to 90% of all your OWASP test requirements can be automatable in the pipeline. The remaining manual things are things like testing multi-factor authentication that no one can bypass CAPTCHA. You still need a human to do that, right? And you may have some last mile things, like maybe you have a mobile app talking to an IoT thing, and that's something kind of hard to DevSecOps automate. You may need a pen tester in the middle to test some of the last mile stuff when you have connected device type scenarios. But this would be really great. You know, we, we foresee a world. Today, we do OWASP MASVS pen testing. We can test the entire thing using MSTG with our humans, and we sell, sell that to people. Tomorrow, we're going to be able to do it by push a button, and it runs in the pipeline automatically. And if Dev and Sec agree these parts of MASVS is what's going to be our security standard, then you have a compliance as code infrastructure now running in your DevSecOps pipeline. It's super exciting. That's that's awesome. Now, one of the things you'd mentioned early on is about supply chain. So I want to circle back to that because I know back in May of 2021, the White House issued a cyber 
release in which they talked about an SBOM, a software bill of materials. And I would think that that would apply particularly in the mobile world, but if there's libraries used and things such as that, how do you see that affecting the mobile app development environment for organizations and what protections, caveats, resources should be available for that? Yeah, so there's there's sort of good news, bad news, and similarities, which is SBOMs, as organizations, we're all going to need to be generating and examining them. If you're a commercial vendor who wants to sell to the federal government, you have to generate an SBOM and provide an SBOM with whatever it is you're selling to the U.S. government, and that's probably going to bleed its way into industry. A lot of organizations over the past decade or so that are more regulated have been paying attention to software bill of materials in a more sophisticated way. We've seen that largely in, in financial services institutions that are, that are more advanced, right? So software bill of materials is one piece of it, right? I said earlier that the apps themselves are a supply chain. The components in the apps that are built either by you or by someone else is a supply chain as well, right? We need to pay attention to it. There's some cool things going on with Dependabot inside of GitHub. There's some great things going with OWASP, by the way. I, I'm a big advocate of OWASP. OWASP now has a Cyclone DX project. The Cyclone DX project is a standardized way to do supply chain security and SBOMs. So we're seeing the industry come together in a more standardized way to do SBOMs and, and SBOM data gathering. As we continue to evolve, I think that the state of the art is going to be SBOMs are going to become part of the underlying mechanism for tracking what's going on with apps. You should have SCA in your pipeline. You should be monitoring the third-party supply chain of your components. And then the SBOM is what are all the components in my bundle that make up my application and what is safe and what is not and what should I update and what is not. SBOM is basically bringing transparency and observability to us to say what is in there and what should I worry about. So if you're a CISO on this call, your team should learn about what they are. They should learn to use them as a tool. You're probably experienced with SAST and DAST. Make sure you have SCA. And make sure you think about between dev and sec, what are you going to be doing in terms of uh, tracking and learning uh, and reporting, leveraging your software bill of materials. So I like that because the SBOM does provide that transparency and almost like a nutrition label on the side of a package of food, you know what's in there. And you say, hey, wheat, I'm okay with that. Crickets, eh, maybe not so much. And although who knows, we'll give it five more years. But the, someone else had pointed out to me when in a different discussion that if you see a fairly short SBOM that is attributed to saying, yes, this is correct, this is all that's in there, what that tells you is what? That the developers, we wrote it ourselves, and as a result, they didn't use existing libraries, which can be tested, evaluated, and scored, but now you've got a big bundle of who knows what's in there. And so for that type of testing, where you really can't take out that module and beat it up because it's used by 100,000 developers, does that mean that the pen testing or that the app testing has to be that much more rigorous? Or what type of alternative should there be if you've got a dev shop that just says, basically, we use our own, or we write our own stuff? Well, I think, I think for an internal team, they should be doing you know, full analysis of that. They can do automated SaaS test, IaaS API second their pipe. They can be doing pen testing. As a third party, it can be challenging, right? So if I'm in the web world and I can see, you know, 10% of the front end and I can't see the 90% of the back end of a production web application I buy, I have to kind of trust that the vendor attests about what's in there or what's not. With mobile, it's actually pretty cool. So we do binary analysis, which means that we don't need to see the source code. So I can generate an SBOM for any binary application you can pull out of the app store that you can load and run on a mobile device. 
So we're able to give you that sort of visibility to that otherwise opaque thing because of our black box uh, nature of testing. We're one of the few vendors that can generate SBOMs dynamically from app binaries and, and not rely on the source code. So it's really a kind of a combo act, which is developers need to do the right thing in writing code. Security teams working with those development teams need to do the right thing, testing it and ensuring that things get fixed. And then we need better observability, right? Which is this ability for independent third parties, systems and services to scan these things and come up with that bill of materials that says for the code you wrote and for the third party code you used, the stuff is safe or the stuff is up to date, right? And I think we'll see more maturing over the long haul of those capabilities and, you know, government regulations like the White House cybersecurity order driving the OMB and purchasing requirements and updated NIST standards, all that stuff is, is going to continue to advance, maybe not as fast as some people want to, but it's going to, going to grow maybe a new level of a groundswell for us all. And the government is doing their part, but I think we've seen some new Google and app regulations and policies for their app store and even things in, with regard to privacy and data safety. Can you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is really great. You know, I, you can tell I'm a big advocate of mobile having 20 years of it injected into my arm and DNA, but there's some real interesting leadership coming in mobile that we're not seeing on the other platforms. So you're probably all aware you couldn't have missed it that Apple's big on privacy. So within all of the Apple products and technologies, especially iOS, uh, over the past two years, there have been a number of privacy gains, including privacy labeling effectively, which is what does this app do with my data? Google launched this year the Play Data Safety program. And the play data safety is essentially that app developers have to attest of how data is being stored, used, transmitted, and so on and so forth, including attesting to third-party software per the conversation we just talked about. So in Apple's world, is kind of I attest for my own app. In Google's world or, or in, in Android, it's I test my app and the third-party libraries that went into my app, which is very interesting. Google one-upped Apple, and they added something called an independent security review. So the first time in history, we have a standards-based independent security review done by authorized third parties that verify the security and privacy of a mobile application based on a standard. Now, I talked earlier about OWASP. Well, guess what? That independent security review is based on OWASP MASVS. Notice the worlds are converging. Inside of the Google Play program is something called a MASA specification, which is just OWASP MASVS. But the whole idea now is we now have the underwriter's laboratory certification that says this app meets this specific set of security and privacy requirements and you can trust it. So that's been deployed. It's been mandatory now for Google starting in August that all Android developers have to submit their play data safety information. The independent security review optional add-on launched as well in August and there's a few thousand apps that I'm aware of uh, to certify them, we're one of the four certifiers. So because we help develop the MASVS spec and work in the industry on standards, we also help develop this program and build in the testing. We're super excited because a lot of our biggest customers raced to embrace this independent security review. Now, not to be outdone, Apple just announced with iOS 16 a safety program as well. So now at a click, you can basically blank your device and have all your PII wiped out from your device and every system that the apps talk to, which is also pretty cool. So it's not a wipe per se, as in I lose everything and go back to factory install. What it is, is a way to safely delete and protect your own data. So I think what we're seeing now is the Apple and Google are actually taking a lead mode and bringing this labeling 
this data safety labeling as I do air quotes around my head because neither of them is calling them a label. So, but you had the nutrition label earlier, which is the picture in my head. It makes it much more transparent to the users what's really going on. And going back to your mobile supply chain conversation, your organization, if you are buying or approving for use commercial applications, use these features from Apple and Google. You should be looking at these safety sections from Apple and Google as part of your evaluation strategy. If you don't have a professional app vetting solution that's really scanning the apps, at least look at those to know what's going on with your data as part of your procurement process. Wow. So as I think about these ideas, it's almost as if you could, if you had everything labeled effectively, it goes a long way on the DLP problem because a lot of organizations, I've got information. What's sensitive? Well, all of it. Well, no. Which do you have to protect most? Well, all of it. Well, then you can't prioritize. And having a body of knowledge that stays weeks, months, years old often creates the problem to say, well, I guess we could start classifying moving forward, but the old stuff is just going to be under you know, ancient blob protected. Do you see that these innovative solutions coming from Google and Apple and, and probably even vendors like yourself at NowSecure being able to address that to help organizations get a better handle on DLP? Because I think that's pretty mature in our desktop networking server environment. But when you get out into the cloud and then finally out to the endpoints with regard to mobile, are all bets off or is that really able to be secured as well? So there's two parts to that. So the DLP side of the house is very interesting, right? First part of DLP is what data do you have? Then where is it? Who's got access to it? And then what are we doing with it? What's its life cycle effectively, right? So it will be interesting to see if the data safety programs could evolve in a way that maybe the enterprise could get some capture of knowledge about, hey, these kinds of data are living on these devices where maybe you didn't have visibility to that before, or these applications are interacting with certain kinds of data. So stay tuned. I mean, I don't know anything inside on that, but I could, I could see that that would evolve. I think what's fascinating to me when you talk about endpoint is, is we obsess about managing endpoints as security professionals, right? So BlackBerry was the ultimate secure lockdown endpoint that had one really good secure application called email. Right. And then BBM, if you were addicted to their early generation messaging technology. And we do all this work to lock down our laptops. And in some regulated worlds, you hear employees complain about how hard they are to use and yada, yada, yada. We just haven't been doing that much with mobile. BYOD really changed things. And most organizations are allowing BYOD and they're trying to rely on an MDM or something else to lock down the endpoint. As I said before, just because my device is managed doesn't mean my application layer is safe. It doesn't, MDM is a configuration option. It is not a security control. And so we need to think about what am I doing to secure those apps? And I need to know what data is in them and I need to vet them, whether I'm building them or whether I'm downloading them. And that's, I think, a very important insight is that a lot of people think, oh, I got MDM, I'm, I'm good. And that's not your layer seven protection at all, as you'd pointed out. And that's where the data lives. It's not so much uh, it being a lower level. So thank you. That's a really great distinction. I guess one other thought I was thinking of is you've been in this industry now for a long, long time, 20 years is a tremendously long time in cybersecurity, particularly to be in something like mobile. Are we better or worse shape than we were when you started doing this? Because I've got my thoughts that when I first started doing cybersecurity, well, gee whiz, we were back in mainframes and punch cards. And if as long as nobody ran out the door with a fan fold a bunch of paper, you had data security. But today, of course, it's a much more complex problem. But how about mobile? Has, as it's gotten more complex, have the solutions gotten better or is it just getting a worse and worse trouble? Is the genie out of the bottle or are we able to maintain it? You know, that's, that's, I even have family members that ask me questions like that who, who aren't in the industry. And the answer is sort of, it depends. Yes. And no, meaning 
what we have done to unleash transparent data access to people kind of anywhere, anytime, the compute power that goes with that, the ability for us to have this conversation that we're having right now was all brought to you by a combination of web and mobile and desktop technology, right? So I think the gains of what has happened in civilization in terms of our ability to do so many different things, whether you look at it on a business or a personal level is much greater. I think what we have now is we have responsibility now that touches everyone for cyber. Whether people have recognized it or not, you're on a cyber team. You're on your own cyber team. What are you doing to protect yourself? You said earlier, people download an app and accept the permissions. Well, you shouldn't do that. You should learn how to make sure you choose the right permissions. We've been trying to teach people to not respond to SMS text messages and not respond to emails and the phishing, right? Phishing still the primary attack vector, right? And it just kind of keeps happening, right? And no matter how much we educate people, maybe it's getting a little bit better. So a lot of this really is the democratization of personal responsibility to do the right thing. If I'm a developer, I should be responsible to write a secure app. If I'm an analyst, I should be, you know, security analyst, I should be responsible for testing that app. If I'm a user, I should be responsible for checking if this thing is safe and then using it in a safe way. I think that's the only way it's going to happen is if everybody works together, right, to try to be part of the security team. Having some of the advancements around Apple and Google, right, and things you're doing around privacy and security, I think are nice net gains. You don't necessarily see the exact same patterns in the web world with like Google and Microsoft or in the desktop world. There's just a whole different architecture and approach to the things you know going on there. So I think we're better for the transparency. I think cyber is a little more visible than it used to be to most people, but I think the personal responsibility part is going to be the only way we're going to protect ourselves. Yeah, you agree with you. So we really have our own non silicon it's kind of the carbon ecosystem if you will of between uh, everybody doing that effectively well that those are some great ideas and some fascinating stuff i mean a couple of things you share with me today i didn't know about and particularly in terms of things like the tool sets the ability to provide that actionable information to developers and the like if our listeners wanted to learn a little bit more information or get in touch with your team saying hey that's something that i could really use how would how would they do so yeah, I'll give you a couple of things. So uh, come to nowsecure.com, N-O-W-S-E-C-U-R-E.com. We're, we're happy to help you out. If you want to learn about more about what real mobile risks there are, we put up a mobile risk tracker. So it's literally mobilerisktracker.nowsecure.com. And if you want to learn more about mobile breaches and how you might consider evolving your own security strategy, go to nowsecure.com slash breaches. We've got a breach tracker that goes back the last couple of years to give you some visibility. So we're here to help. We work with a large partner ecosystem. Check out the OWASP mobile project too. I talked about OWASP MASVS. This new update that's coming later this year that allows us to get to compliance as code is going to be phenomenal for really raising the bar in, in a DevSecOps kind of scenario. Well, Brian, this has been fascinating. I've learned an awful lot from you on this call. And so I I do appreciate you taking the time and sharing with our listeners all these insights. Any final thoughts you have before we wrap up? Well, as as much as we talked about some doom and gloom, I still love mobile. I'm still, you know, enthusiastic about where we're going. I think it's, it's, you know, it's the CISO and the leadership's responsibility to lead, help enable your company to be safe in cyber, take advantage of a lot of the things that are going on, drive a mobile first business because it's still the best way to reach, reach your customers and empower your employees. Partner with the business on how to do it safely. Well, I think that's excellent advice. So thank you very much. This has been Brian Reed, our Chief Mobility Officer from Now Secure, here with us on CISO Tradecraft. And we hope you've enjoyed this particular show. If you have, please make sure that you give us a like or five stars on your favorite 
platform that you listen to on podcasts. It really helps us boost our ratings, which would allow us to meet and greet more people to help them with their careers. Of course, pass it along as well. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy. Thank you for being with us. And until next time, stay safe out there.